Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Today's episode number 396, Building an AI-Driven Startup with Sean Olds at Boodle AI. I was literally in with a team of less than 30 people at this little startup, 3A round, and uh, then rode them from A round to B round to C round to IPO to $7 billion valuation to debt spiral to bankruptcy. Um, And being able to do that as a consultant where it wasn't my money, it wasn't tied up, I really got to learn and I totally got the bug. Just wrapped up my conversation with Sean and it was so enjoyable. A couple of things that stand out to me. Um, One of the things is he has a great quote about always be ready for opportunities and to embrace the right thing. And his story is so incredible from this perspective, all the way from his unexpected medical discharge from the military to a winding road through consultings and startups and back to startups and starting his own company. It's just really shows you the power of resilience, but also being open to unexpected deviations in your career and life, which will inevitably happen. Second of all, we talk a lot about networking, and he gives a couple really poignant examples of where 10 to 20 years after meeting someone, he and people in his network reconnect in a way that alters their career. And it really gets away from this transactional thought of networking to rather something that veterans excel at, which is just genuinely meeting people, enjoying them, and being generous. And and to that point, immediately after recording, Sean asked me, you know, he said, how can I help you with your company, Captivate.ai? And it, it was just like so powerful to see him immediately and genuinely putting to use his principle of just approaching networking from a generous and giving standpoint. We talk about grad school. He gives example of a, of a friend who sold his company for $240 million and then went to business school and really underscored is the thought that, um, you know, there is no one right size fits all approach to education and what to do with your career. It's about learning and serendipity. And we also talk about his own startup journey and the milestones to creating his company. I I did something for the first time in this interview, which is kind of live mentorship, where I ask him a a specific question about my company, Captivate.ai. I think his answer will benefit anyone interested in entrepreneurship. As always, at beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find show notes with links to everything we discussed in this episode, as well as 395 other episodes just like this, all offered for free. So with that, let's dive in to my conversation with Sean Olds at Boodle AI. Joining me today in Falls Church, Virginia, my guest is Sean Olds. Sean, welcome to Be on the Uniform. Justin, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here today. I want to give our listeners some context for how we got connected. So I'm in the process of redoing our website for my company, Captivate.ai. And uh, there's all of these articles out there that are like the 10 best websites for SaaS, the 10 best websites for whatever. And it was in one of these articles that someone mentioned Boodle. And I actually, when I was talking to designers, it's one of the three websites (laughs) that I mentioned where I'm like, this is a great website. So I then saw that Sean was a veteran. And so um, invited him on the show. But let me give you some background on Sean because he's got an incredible background. Sean is the co-founder. He's also the CEO at Boodle AI, which specializes in enriched analytics for sales, marketing, and fundraising teams. 
Boodle AI is on a mission to democratize data, making it faster and easier for all organizations to locate their best leads and prospects in any contact list. By using advanced data enrichment and insightful predictive analytics, Boodle AI clients have already experienced significant lifts in conversion, engagement, and retention rates. Boodle AI has over 20 employees, has raised $8 million in funding, and is located in Tysons, Virginia. Sean holds a Bachelor's of Science in Computer Science from West Point, an MBA from Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, and a Juris Doctorate from Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. So Sean, maybe to start off, could you take us back to your transition from the military and what that was like? Uh, painful to say the least. I graduated from uh, and got commissioned and like probably many second lieutenants, had my entire career path in the army, spec'd out from platoon leader to chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And uh, one day at uh, Fort Bragg, jumping out of a plane made by the lowest bidder and a shoot made by the lowest bidder, uh, the two didn't work out so well for me. My unit, I was uh, the SIGO at the time for the 373 Armored Battalion, the last parachute tank battalion in the world. And we were volunteered for to be the first group of human wind dummies out of the C-17. And I think on that particular jump, there were about 21 of us that were injured and half of us ended up getting medicaled out. So when I got transitioned or as I was doing my transition, it was painful obviously from a, a broken back, but it was also painful because when I got commissioned, the words civilian and any type of, of private sector career just were not my vocabulary. And so I went through, I was very fortunate at the time, there were a group of junior military officer recruiting firms out there. And I, I mean, I still remember vividly going to these, uh, I don't know if it's Homewood Suites or, but these hotels that are all around a big courtyard and the rooms are all a bedroom with a living room. And you'd basically just kind of walk around the hotel and do 20 minute interviews. And you were guaranteed to be able to interview with some firms you wanted to, but you also had to go interview with maybe things you weren't so interested in. And I interviewed for a, a sales job to sell corrugated boxes in South Carolina. But one of those jobs I actually didn't want to interview for because I didn't think I could do it was for consulting. You know, I read up on consulting as I was getting out of the army and consulting was telling other business leaders how to do their business better. And I didn't have a business background. So I thought, there's no way I could, you know, potentially do that job and was kind of embarrassed to even go sit through the interview and actually got interviewed by a former Navy officer who walked me through how consultants learn and how they get up to speed and why they wanted people out of the military to come in. And uh, that ended up being my, my first job working for a consulting firm out of the Army. I think that's the best description I've ever heard of consulting. I think you said telling other business owners how to better run their business. I love that. And I remember in grad school, one of my professors had just said, like, you've got to have a certain amount of cockiness to do consulting, to kind of go into these big organizations and tell them this is how you do things. And maybe to kind of double down on there, because I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about Boodle AI. Could you kind of maybe highlight from there, what would you want listeners to know about your path from starting in consulting up until you started Boodle AI, what, what sorts of things were you up to? So very non-traditional. No one says, you know, this is kind of the typical path. I, I think if I wanted one lesson to be learned from it, it's, you know, always be ready for opportunities and embrace them, even if they don't seem like the right thing. Consulting interview did not seem like the right thing. And that was a very pivotal juncture for me. I went to that consulting firm, was doing supply chain and operations consulting for them, both on the technology and operations side the technology side, because I had the computer science background at the time. And because of that, within six months, 
this is late 90s, right around the dot-com boom, that particular consulting firm decided to be one of the first ones that was going to take their uh, payments in part cash, part equity. And so they tied into a little startup and it was a pre-A round startup. And uh, I literally was one of the only consultants with a computer science degree. So if you're doing an e-commerce company and you want to put your best foot forward, you brag about your consultants who have a computer science degree. And so I got pitched to go on the project. I was literally in with a team of less than 30 people at this little startup pre-A round and uh, then rode them from A round to B round to C round to IPO to $7 billion valuation to debt spiral to bankruptcy. And being able to do that as a consultant where it wasn't my money, it wasn't tied up, I really got to learn. And I totally got the bug. And so left that to start a company with a classmate of mine, did modestly well with that. And we took everything we did from that, put it into a second company and lost everything. And uh, that was a, a harsh lesson to learn and was kind of back out trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. I really wanted to do a startup, but I didn't have the funds to do so. And had an offer from someone I had worked for before to help him with a company he was building. And it was a very, you know, for a kid who was not yet 30, had no graduate degree. And this gentleman, just because I'd worked for him before and he got around to funding, offered me a, a six-figure job. And this was Friday, September 7th of 2001. And I had read all the books about how you got to play coy and don't jump on a job. And so I told him I would get back to him next week and uh, was sitting on the offer that I was ready to jump on because I'd never you know, imagined seeing a six-figure paycheck at that age. And uh, September 11th happened. And I uh, literally got a call the morning of September 12th from one of my former battalion commanders who had know, knew what happened when I got out and said, hey, do you want to serve again? And uh, got the opportunity to go back to the government working counterterrorism work and spent uh, a good deal of time in Southwest Asia and Africa were the, the two areas of focus I had. It was just a wonderful opportunity to go back and serve again. You know, when I, I left the army early, long before my commitment was up, I just felt like I hadn't completed my service. And so a uh, fascinating opportunity at a time when the, the country needed it and went and did that. And uh, when I wrapped that up, went back to grad school. Uh, you know, didn't, didn't see anything I was passionate about starting as far as a company, wasn't ready necessarily to go back into consulting and had an opportunity to go back to grad school. And so did that. In there, found my, uh, my wonderful wife who uh, we decided we were going to settle down a little bit and doing startups was not the way to do that. After grad school, went back into consulting and did that for a little bit until uh, I got recruited by a sovereign wealth fund in the Middle East and uh, went over to the Middle East to what I, what I would term my most well-funded startup, the only startup to fly me around the world first class. Uh, it was, uh, you know, the government's money and they wanted to build the first ever global Arab energy company. And so they recruited about a dozen of us to, to do that. And uh, each of us acted as a, in an executive role. And because of my supply chain background, I got to be the chief procurement officer there. And so did that and then bounced around a couple of other things in the Middle East was about to head to Singapore with my family and came back to the United States for a meeting for an angel investment my wife and I had made. And my now co-founder, who was my ranger buddy in ranger school, found out I was in country and said, hey, I've got an idea I want to run past you. And he pitched me on the idea of what is now Boodle. And it was really funny because he's a successful serial entrepreneur and uh, already had two companies he was running, had this idea. And he's like, I can't run this but I can put money in with you and I'll just be the chairman and you run it. And I said, well, I'm moving to Singapore. I can't run it. And uh, as he pitched me more and more on it, it just merged two great passions. One, doing startups, 
and two, helping nonprofits. Through that entire career path I just walked through, I've always served on nonprofit boards. Literally started the day I got commissioned, went on my first nonprofit board that was focused on youth education and have worked on a variety of veteran service organizations. And the idea behind Boodle was, was to help them. And so it was, uh, I had to go a little bit tail between legs as I flew home 15 hours because my I'd made a commitment to my wife that we would start angel investing if I quit doing startups myself. And so I had to ask for one more chance at it. And I was very fortunate. She was very understanding and supportive. What a great summary. And in 396 episodes, that might be the most movie-like but honest view of a career path I've heard. And a couple things I just want to bookmark for listeners is, I love the way that you said it, I wrote it down, always be ready for opportunities and to embrace the right thing. And one thing that stands out from your story is like, you know, you have your career plans in the military, things change. And, you know, you see that a couple times in your story where you have your plan on the way things are going to go. And then life happens, the September 11th happens, like all of these things. And I think it's just a great reminder for myself, 10 years out of the military and for listeners that it's like, you can have your plans, but there's so much out of your control. And as you retell the story, I can only imagine how much uncertainty there was, how much pain and discomfort there was, but it does seem like you're just kind of ducking and weaving and going along with these changes and adapting. And I think that's a, a great reminder for listeners. Another thing that stands out is it's like, man, you have such a rich career. You have your military experience, your startup experience, you have your grad school experience, you have the consultant experience, like all of these different experiences. And, you know, fast forward, what leads to Boodle actually came from your experience at Ranger School, which, you know, it seems like at the time that that occurred, that's multiple chapters back in the story. And I think it's a great reminder to our audience that, you know, yes, you can go to great companies, you can go to grad schools, but you never know where your network will lead. And even what a decade out of the military, those military connections are still paying dividends. And I think that's really powerful. And then one thing I wanted to just ask about just to jump ahead is I always like to ask about grad school, especially from where you sit five years into Boodle now. And as you were telling your story, I was jealous because I'm like, man, had I gone to business school, having had consulting experience and startup exposure, it would have been monumentally different from the value I extracted. But I'm just kind of curious your thought on, you know, having obtained an MBA and a JD, it's such an often question that veterans ask, like, do I go to school? And I'm curious, you, know, you probably get this question a lot as well. How vital has that been in your own story, apart from the MRS that you picked up <laughs> along the way, but how you might recommend veterans consider going back to school and if so, when to do so? Sure. If you don't mind, I'm going to put that just a second. I want to reiterate what you just talked about because it gets glossed over a lot. And that is the network. I had no idea when I got out of the military. And one of the most valuable things I learned when I went to my first consulting firm, we spent a whole week onboarding. We had, went through one class after another but they literally dedicated over three hours to networking. And they brought in partners and, and, you know, these were partners at the firm that were legends. And every single one of them walked through the kind of deal that made them a partner. And they traced back that deal 10, 15, 20 years earlier to a project they were on where they met someone that was their rank, their level, who had progressed through the years and ended up buying work from them you know, and buying a multi-million dollar engagement that made them a partner at the firm. 
And a lot of people take for granted the meetings that they make. And a lot of times just very transactional, like what can I get from you? And I think that doesn't exist as much with veterans. I think it's something we naturally, we just, you know, how do I help the man or woman to my left or right? What do I do for them to make sure that we're all successful at getting off the battlefield? And so if you can keep that in mind as you go into the business world, it's something that is just of vital importance and will, will serve anyone well as they, they go through their career. I just want to say, I really like that. And, you know, what I take away from that is it's the long view. I feel like transactional is very short term focused, but when you put it in perspective of 10, 20 years later, these connections, it's like, there's no way to game that from a transactional standpoint. That's just being genuinely interested in another person, which I think, as you said, veterans tend to spike in that of just kind of be their generosity. So I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Absolutely. So to go back to your original question on grad school, I try and, and mentor veterans as much as possible. I carve out a portion of my week to take meetings if, if I'm asked. And I always tell people it's, it's really a decision you have to make. There's no yes or no for every single person. You know, I can give examples of people who probably wouldn't be where they are if they hadn't gone to grad school. A lot of veterans fall on that if they come right out of the military and they don't know what they want to do. Grad school is a great place to go back and kind of find out what's out there, what, what exists out there. At the same time, I have, you know, very successful gentleman named Bob Eisminger, who's here in the D.C. area, is one of my investors. He's going back after selling his company for $240 million, and he's getting his MBA now. And he's doing it just because he wants to learn more. He wants to continue to build his networks. But he didn't need an MBA to build a $240 million company that he sold off. And so, you know, I tell people it's, it's really a, an internal decision you've got to make. And if you've got an opportunity to do something you really want to do, you should pursue that. If you have a wonderful job opportunity that you think you're well suited for and the company hiring you in thinks you're well suited for, then you should jump on that and embrace it. Um, but if you're kind of doing things to just plot along or it seems like it's what everybody else is doing, grad school can be a wonderful opportunity, one, to build new networks but two, to discover from other people. I mean, when you go in and get an MBA, you're gonna have people in there who were consultants, who were bankers, who were entrepreneurs, who were from all walks of life. And you're gonna be able to sit in the evening, drink beers with them and hear what they did and be able to picture, well, that's definitely not something I wanna do, or wow, that sounds pretty fascinating. Maybe this is a career path I wanna pursue. I like a lot about that. I think the thing that stands out to me the most is this image of this man selling his company for $240 million and going back to business school. And I think that I tend to think of things in terms of sequences of like, well, you get, you know, like what I did, I got out of the military, I went to business school, I went into work. And I think what you're talking about underscores the importance of like choosing opportunities that nourish you, that are good for you, that are interesting to you. And this sense of like lifelong learning, because I'm like, man, this guy could probably be teaching at business school. But it, to me, it indicates one of the reasons he was likely so successful is that if he's selling his company and then going back to learn and grow and network, it shows the type of hunger for education and learning and new experiences that likely led to his success. Absolutely. Well, let's maybe shift gears. I want to talk a little bit more about Boodle, which we started to get into, but let's lay the foundation. I kind of had that boilerplate at the start. How would you, you know, you're on the street, you run into someone who just graduated from West Point and they're like, Sean, what do you do for a living? How do you describe what the company does? And then specifically what you do as, as a co-founder and as the CEO? Sure. So I did. Very high level, Boodle AI uh, provides enriched analytics and machine learning power predictive analytics 
to marketing teams, sales teams, and fundraising teams in nonprofits, marketing teams and sales teams in commercial companies. So we work with direct-to-consumer companies to help them find their best customers and retain their best customers. We work with nonprofits and their fundraising teams to help them find their best donors. As I mentioned earlier that we got our start purely in the nonprofit space, but as France and I were building the company, we realized that if we really wanted to build a company that was going to scale, we had to build a technology that could be used in the commercial space. And so we built that in mind. We actually got pulled in a little bit earlier into the commercial space than we anticipated. We ended last year with about 80% of our revenue coming, or 80% of our clients being nonprofits, but 60% of our revenue coming from commercial clients, which is wonderful because we have a variety of things internal to the company that really focuses on, takes a portion of our profits and puts it back in the nonprofit community. And so, you know, a lot of our team is very enthused by the fact that we're leveraging commercial profits to help the nonprofit community. But at the end of the day, what we're really able to do is bring an organization's own data. And many organizations have what you call skinny data. They might know their customer's name, their email address, their postal address, and what they bought, but they don't know much else about them. We use um, our own proprietary identity resolution to then match that person to a third-party database we have access to of 240 million adult Americans. And we bring in over 1,200 different data points. We term affinity-based data points. So a lot of predictive analytics companies today will use uh, intent-based data. So they'll take a look at websites did Justin click on? What, how long was he there visiting? What did he tweet most recently? What did he like on Facebook? And that's all very informative in telling us whether Justin's about to buy something. What we really wanted to focus on are the lifetime customers to a company or the lifetime donors to an organization. And so the data points we bring in are a decade worth of where has Justin lived, where has he worked, voting records, who he's donated to politically and philanthropically, credit card transaction data, all things that's really going to help the organization define who Justin is and how he wants to be approached therefore allowing them to find more people like Justin when he's a really good customer, but also get him in a mindset where they're able to retain him as a lifetime customer. That's great. I love that. One thing I just think is so awesome is that um, I love to hear that you started, you know, with, with this desire to help nonprofits. And then you realize like, it almost feels like this strategic stepping back of like, well, to actually really help them at scale. And for the long term, we need to have this commercial component. And I love those stats. I just want to reiterate for listeners is, you know, 80% of your clients are nonprofits, but 60% of the revenue from commercial clients. It's a great example of how, you know, yes, nonprofits are great, but like this is a great example of monetizing a corporate client then allows you to serve a broader and greater audience. It's a very sage perspective to deliver the biggest impact. We're not just going to slog it out and try to get nonprofits. Like I love that strategic twist, but I interrupted as you as you were about to describe your role. No, not at all. You know, my role as a co-founder and CEO is Everything from taking out the trash to finding the next customers, you know, building the company in between them and, and building the company is building the product, finding the revenues, bringing in most importantly, bringing in investors early on because most startups are not profitable right from the start, but then bringing in the right team and building the right culture. And so, you know, two years ago, I was dealing with customers. I was doing the sales. I was walked on the laundry list. Um, now I have a wonderful VP of customer success who's 
very strategically approach our customers. We have a wonderful VP of sales, um, of a wonderful VP of experience who handles both our product and our marketing. The twixt in between there in the past two years, so well, France, my co-founder, started out as chairman because he was running his other companies. He ended up selling one of his companies. And after taking a year off and setting up a family office and teaching, decided to come back with us full time. And so he came on as our chief strategy officer. And that's just been instrumental in taking the company to the next level, having an asset like that on board. And so we've you know, built the organization. We've built a culture we're very proud of. Um, you talked about a minute ago about how we're leveraging the commercial to give back to the, the nonprofit community. One of the things France and I did at the very beginning, we got introduced to, I don't know if you've ever heard of the 1% pledge before. So we got introduced to the people at 1% pledge. We signed up right away. But as France and I looked at it, we said, you know, we can do more. And so we created a Boodle 54321 pledge. And our 54321 pledge, which I, before anybody gets an offer, I brief them on it and they have to accept it because it impacts what, how they're going to work at Boodle. So 5% of all of our profits go back into our corporate DAF, a donor advice fund, and they get donated back out to the nonprofit community. And sometimes the leadership picks that, sometimes our team picks who that goes to. The four is that four times a year, we listen to our clients, our nonprofits, and find out what they want to hear about. And because we've built a network over time, you know, France, myself, and other people on the team, we're able to reach out and bring people in to help teach seminars on that for, uh, once a quarter. So like last quarter, we did one on messaging. So we brought in a, a top-ranked person on digital messaging, a top-ranked person on email messaging, and a top-ranked person on text messaging. Does nothing for Boodle. It has nothing to do with what Boodle does, but it's valuable to our customer base. 3% is that 3% of our profits go back in the form of a, a grant so that 50% of a license can get paid for by a nonprofit that raises less than a million dollars a year. So we wanted to make sure that there was never an obstacle, even for smaller nonprofits, to get on the platform. 2% uh, of our employees' time goes back to nonprofit of their choice. So if they want to leave an hour early every Friday and go work at the local soup kitchen, they can do that. Or if they want to take a week off during the summer and build a school someplace, they can do that as well. And then 1% is France and I's equity as founders goes back to charity. I think the biggest thing that I'm taking away, and I hope listeners do as well, is I think that that snippet you just gave us is such incredible insight into your and your team's meticulous approach to structuring a company. I think of uh, in Jocko Willink's extreme ownership, like one of the things I took away is like, man, to lead a team, you got to really distill an incredibly complex strategy down to like a sentence or two that anyone on the line can employ and, and can understand the intent to operate from. And that articulation there of the 54321 plan, it just really dissects a whole ocean of intent. I think it's so great. And the specificity in time and equity and listening, I just think that's so fantastic. You know, one thing to go along, well, man, there's so many different ways to go here. And I'm just trying to monitor our time. So maybe to, um, to zoom out on the five years, you know, do you view that kind of, I mean, five years in startups is like 50 years anywhere else. And one thing I'm curious about is as you look at your journey, do you view it in kind of like chapters or segments? Was there like a period where it was just you and one other person and you didn't really know if it was going to work? And then what are the milestones that you view in the company? Was it uh, funding or acquiring a certain number of customers or realizing you needed to shift to corporate? Do you view it in those ways? Because I'd love to break it down to kind of 
showcase the periods of growth that you've experienced along the way? It's, it's an interesting question. So companies, of course, always set milestones. You can't sit with an investor and say, we're just going to build a business. Um, the reality is it's like any op order. It's a great plan, but you know, as soon as you meet the enemy, it changes. And, and so I don't know that we have you know, set out 10 milestones and we tick the block and go, okay, we got those 10 milestones done. Um, you know, your first customers that provide positive feedback, you know, it, it tells you, you ask the question, you're like, is this going to work? That's always in the back of your mind. You're building a product. You think it's going to work. You think it's what the market wants. You've talked to a lot of people, but, you know, is it really going to work? Um, and when you start to get those first few customers who come back and go, wow, this is very valuable. For me, a big milestone was when we got our first renewal. You know, one of our, our first three clients was one of our first clients to renew. And, you know, it's one thing to go through a whole year of using a product once you've paid for it, because you've paid for it, you got to use it. But it's another thing to come back and then renew. And we're now even getting some customers who are renewing for multi-year licenses, which is really gratifying. Um, you know, another big milestone for us, of course, was bringing in venture capital. You know, it's a, a bit of a validation that a, an established venture capital firm, and in our case, Osage Venture Partners out of Philadelphia, they invested in us out of their fifth fund. So this is a firm that's been around for decades. They only invest in B2B SaaS businesses. Um, and we went through a, a six-month due diligence process. In fact, I think we were one of their first investments where they had never met the team in person. Because of the pandemic, we had to do the entire due diligence over Zoom. But that was definitely a milestone. Reaching a million dollars in sales is always a big milestone for any startup. And, and that, was, uh, that was a huge accomplishment. For me, one of the biggest accomplishments every day is, is just seeing how hard the team works and yet how happy they are. You know, it's, it's one of the things when I talk to people who are talking about starting companies, I always question them about why they're doing it. You know, what, what is that? Do you really have a passion for it? Because if you don't have a passion for it, when it gets hard, it's going to be really hard to be there. And if you as a leader are not in it, there's no way to inspire the people below you to stay in it and stick with it. But, you know, this is, as I mentioned at the outset, this is a problem that France and I recognized in the nonprofit space from the very beginning. And every day we get to work with people in the nonprofit space who are, who are helping others, who are serving others. And to know that you're making their job easier, making them more efficient, that's just, it's hard not to get excited by that. I love that. I was just taking notes as you were talking on that. I really appreciate those milestones. Let me ask a question. I don't think I've done this on the show before, but we'll do some live mentoring because I want to ask you about the fundraising piece. And usually I abstract things. We'll try something opposite for our audience to mix it up, which I'll give a specific example, which I think that our audience interested in entrepreneurship can abstract. So, you know, my path was I raised about three and a half million dollars for my first startup, Storybox. And one thing that I realized, and this might be the naivete of a, of a first-time founder, was every time we raised funding, I was the least efficient. I would throw money at ideas that were unproven. And my sense was that it caused me to stop listening to my customers who were giving us really great feedback and start building products that investors were more interested in. And so I have some scars around raising money. And we're just at a point right now with my current company, Captain where I'm starting to see 
that, you know, everything's been bootstrapped up until now. And I'm starting to see things that we could be doing that we're not just because I'm cheap and we don't have the, the funds to do so. And I feel like there's this dilemma for companies about whether to, you know, there's, there's this story that I have that when you bootstrap, like you have to be so laser focused on what matters. You have to trim the fat and you have to be obsessively focused on what people are willing to pay for. And there's part of me that loves that, that loves the purity of that, that loves the every effort goes into sales rather than into, into funding. And I can only imagine the caliber of people that you've hired the rate at which you've grown, the insight that you've gleaned from investors, that only comes from taking outside capital. And I know you mentioned that as a validation milestone. And so, you know, we can do this specifically for myself or just for, I, I know there's a lot in our audience that's interested in entrepreneurship. How would you advise a company or myself to think about that decision of whether to fundraise? And if so, What's the right point? And I'll, I'll add one other detail. Like kind of the mantra that I've had in my own mind is until we get to $100,000 in monthly recurring revenue off the table, any thought of investment, like that's kind of like the benchmark of getting there. And I'm cognizant, you know, we're about a quarter of the way there. I'm cognizant of like how difficult it can be to achieve that bootstrapping. And so obviously, you know, long monologue there, but I'd love any feedback you have. Look, you hit the nail on the head. I actually, when I was living in the Middle East, I taught as an adjunct small business management and entrepreneurship at the University of Dubai. And the other section was taught by a local Emirati who wanted to publish a book on that topic, but from a Middle Eastern perspective, because all the tech from an American perspective. And we got funding from the government of Abu Dhabi, but what they wanted us to do was go to other entrepreneurial ecosystems and glean as much as we could from them. So we went to obviously Silicon Valley, we went to Boston, we went to Toronto, we went to Singapore, picked a lot of the big ecosystems. One of the most interesting ones was talking to the, to the government of Canada, because in Toronto, people in the government and people in the investment community both said the same thing. One of the greatest things about start the startup community usually is that bad ideas just fail and they go away. The worst thing you can do is give a bad idea more money because a bad idea doesn't get any better. And what they were doing is they were creating a lot of kind of cushions and companies that were going to fail actually lasted two years longer. Now, they didn't produce anything better. They didn't get any further. They just should have failed. But they did it because they had money and they could afford to just continue to theorize on what was going to do it. If you can hold off on raising money, number one, you're going to save yourself a bunch of dilution. So you're going to hold on for you and for your team a lot more equity. But number two, your point is so valid is you operate leanly. You focus on what the customer is telling you. You focus on, I mean, we never, ever, ever come up with an idea and then give it to our development team to productize and build out and then give it to the community. If we hear feedback from one customer, we mock it up and then we share it with a dozen customers. And only after that feedback does the product team work with the development team to actually productize it. But it's because we've stayed lean while we've raised a lot of money. We've done it over a long period of time and we've never raised a huge chunk all at once. It's always been kind of small amounts where we knew we were going to be around, but we had to stay lean as lean as possible. And so I'm, I think the point you made is a very valid one. The longer you can stay lean, the longer you can truly figure out this is what my customers want and this is what they want. 
want to deliver. And if you're doing $100,000 in monthly recurring revenue, you've probably figured out what your customers want. You know, that's the point where you say, okay, now's the time to bring money in and really scale up. Because one, I'm going to do it at a valuation where I'm not going to get horribly diluted. And number two, we figured out what, what our customers want and we can actually build it out at scale. Such a great answer. And I love the macro view. That's such a great insight from Canada, which is, you know, I, I love that phrase of like fail fast, you know, because it's like the worst thing you can do is invest two years, five years, 10 years in something that, you know, the market is really telling you this shouldn't exist or it's not going to be sustainable for the team that you're wanting to support. But I, you know, the sense I had when you were describing that is uh, one of the, the more fit people I know, uh, he said to me, this is years ago, but he's like, he said, it's, we don't want to be hungry, but it's actually a good thing to have your body desiring food and not just be overeating. And he was, you know, super, super trim and fit. That's the sense that I got when you were talking was raising money. Like sometimes when I think of raising money, it's like, God, let me get so much dry powder that we can weather a storm. Let's get twice as much as we need. And there was some sense coming through. And what you're saying is like, just kind of you know, cutting off just enough food that you need to satiate, but keeping you hungry where you have to continue to listen. And I specifically love that idea of you get that idea from a customer, you mock it up, you share it with more to validate, and then you build up the validations there. Such an incredible approach to product development, regardless of the size of a company. I always like to ask about resources. And this could be books that have influenced your career. This could be uh, conferences you've attended or podcasts you listen to. But I'm specifically thinking again of that, that poor soul on a submarine right now, like I was, you know, just looking for something to further their career. They don't have the opportunity maybe to go to school right now, but what's something that they could pick up today that might help them? Actually, you know, something you can do today that I couldn't do when I got out. And, and we talked about it at the very beginning, I paid specific attention to it is building the network. And LinkedIn is, is an absolutely wonderful tool for that. Um, just an easy way to stay in touch. When that poor soul in a submarine or the poor grunt in a foxhole gets back to the US, every time I go on a trip, the day before I leave or the week before I leave, I get on LinkedIn to see who's in the city I'm going to. And you know, you've always got a 30 minute wholesome place to grab coffee. I will reach out to people and just see if they can take 30 minutes to grab coffee. It helps, you know, nurture connection. It helps you understand what's going on in their life. But LinkedIn is just an amazing resource to start to learn and frankly, reach out. Um, you know, I've had veterans reach out to me and just ask for 20, 30 minutes to talk. And as I said, I'll set aside and I know many veterans who do the same thing. We'll just set aside time to each week to, to take those conversations and talk to people. So don't be timid. If you see someone in a space that you're interested in, reach out and say, hey, is there any chance in the next two months that you could take 20 minutes for me? I don't know many people that are so busy that they, and I'm pretty damn busy right now. I don't know many people who can't take 20 minutes to, you know, help someone out in the next two months. I just, I want to underscore for listeners. Like, I think it's great that, you know, I can only imagine the demands on your time. And I think it's so great that you're, I mean, one, carving out time for this conversation, but, you know, this is part of what you're doing, carving out these 20 minute blocks. And I think that's just really speaks to your generosity on that. And I hope for listeners, it's a, you know, Sean is exceptionally busy and to hear him saying he's carving time out to talk to people who need his help and advice and other veterans. I hope that emboldens you to reach out to people like I want to help. Sean wants to help. There's so many people that want to help you. So don't be afraid to, to reach out. And to be fair, just, just to be fair, very quickly, not my, not my brainstorm of an idea. I had 
wonderful veterans who helped me when I got out. Um, and I didn't have LinkedIn back then, but when I reached out to people, people responded. When I started my first company, there was a, a West Point grad in the Los Angeles area who had his JD MBA, who was working for a venture-backed startup. Um, he used to take my co-founder and I out for burgers and beers on a Friday night because we couldn't afford that. And he would go through our business plan with us. He would talk to us about fundraising. Um, so, you know, I had that resource available. It was out there. And, and you know, I, I feel it's, it's our responsibility to give back when we can. So. That's great. That's great. Well, I always like to keep the last question open-ended and you can take this in one of two ways. Either what's something we didn't cover, I didn't ask you about, but you know would benefit listeners that you want to share, that there's a blank check to go in that direction, or is there just any anything you want to reiterate, any final words of wisdom before we wrap up? Um, I'll do both. One is I'll harp on the networking side, you know, network in, in, you know, to network doesn't mean you always have to be able to offer something, but be an active listener when you network, because you'd be surprised at some things you might be able to offer people. And I'm always, I'm, I'm a person in a conversation. I like to try and figure out what I can offer the individual, even if I need something. As far as open-ended, I think the one, one thing I wish I had thought a little bit more in my twenties was not rushing to stuff. I always felt like I was behind. Like I, you know, I spent four years in the army and I was so far behind everybody else who had just gone to college and gone into the private sector. And the reality is you're never behind. A lot of people would say starting a company in my forties, I, I was really late because everybody pictures the college kid in a garage starting a company. There was a great study done. I forget what venture firm did it last year, found that the average age of a startup entrepreneur who's funded, so an A round funded startup, um, was 43, I think it was. That was the average age. So, you know, while the, the movies play up the young 20-something who's starting company, the reality is there's a lot of people later in life that are starting companies. And so there's no rush to get someplace. Enjoy the experiences that are along the way. And I would have stayed in the Army longer if I had the option. And you don't ever get to go back and have someone pay you to jump out of airplanes and blow stuff up. So enjoy it while you can. The, uh, the outside sector makes you pay a lot of money to do that stuff. So great. Well, Sean, I really appreciate your time on this. I'm imagining this is an episode that people could listen to a couple times and glean insights. And for listeners at beyondtheuniform.org, in the show notes for this episode, we'll have links to Boodle AI. We'll have links to everything that Sean recommended, as well as 394 other episodes just like this one. Um, thank you so much for your time today, Sean. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. Surface, surface, surface. <laughs> Beyond the Uniform is written and produced by me, Justin Asiri, with the help from our Chief of Staff, Steve Bain, our Editor, Lex Brown, and our Head of Social Media, Janelle Hanf. We are an all-volunteer organization and would greatly appreciate your help in any of the following ways. First of all, spread the word. Beyond the Uniform has over 380 podcast episodes and 15 on-demand webinars, all offered for free. Help us spread the word on social media, at military bases, or whatever gets this resource in front of the men and women who need it. Positive reviews on iTunes go a long way towards this as well. Second of all, sponsorship. Beyond the Uniform relies on sponsorship to keep us going. There is so much more we'd like to do, but just don't have nearly the resources to do it. If you know of a company that would advertise in any way with Beyond the Uniform, please send them our way. Third of all, donations. If you're in a financial position to donate, you can find more information on the support section of our website. At our website, beyondtheuniform.org, you'll find over 380 episodes categorized by industry, functional role, and more. You'll also find both free and for purchase resources that take a deeper dive on topics related to career growth. Thank you for your support as we aim to help members of the military and their families thrive in their post-military career in life.